This podcast is brought to you by Zinc. Zinc is an all-in-one background and reference checking software that supercharges the capabilities of ambitious HR and hiring teams. Our range of integrated solutions turn bad to brilliant, saving weeks of team time all while building brand love. Welcome to Talent Hacks for Scale-Ups, the show for growing businesses moving at the speed of light. I'm your host, Sophie Power. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the talent lead here at Zinc, having joined earlier this year, and I'll be taking over from Theo Smith. For our returning episode nine, I am delighted to welcome Rob Long, who is CHRO at Workable. Here at Zinc, we're big fans of Workable. They're one of our favourite integration partners, and as Zinc's recruiter myself, I find their ATS platform so easy to use. So today, we'll be talking about Rob's path to becoming Workable's CHRO. It's a relatively new C-suite position, the emergence of this seat at the boardroom table, or maybe video call these days shows the leaps and bounds HR and recruiting has made to take the space it deserves in scaling successful businesses. So Rob has very kindly agreed to share his career journey so far, and we'll be talking a little bit later in the episode about what to look for when looking at progression opportunities and job satisfaction whilst interviewing. So Rob, welcome. Thank you, Sophie. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. No, thank you for thank you for joining. How are you doing? Very, very well, thanks. It's a nice sunny Tuesday morning, so I'm pretty happy. How about yourself? Yeah, much the same, much the same. I'm loaded up on coffee, so I'm ready to hit the day. Me too. Um, (laughs) Cool. So um, I thought a great place to start would be the obvious, given the title of the episode. And would you mind summarising your journey to CHRO? And we can go from there. Sure. Um, I'll try and keep it short and interesting, but I'll probably be better at keeping it short. So when I went to university, I did an economics degree um, and spent most of the three years um, saying that I'd never become an accountant because that's what most people in my course would end up doing. That's what the number said. But I said, no, 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 that won't happen. But sure enough, left university, went, well, what do I do now? I didn't have something I really wanted to do. There was no passion to become a something. And so sure enough, I fell into um, a graduate training course for accountancy. Um, I didn't last the the full length there, though. I was there for just under, I think, two years. So didn't actually get qualified as an accountant. Um, but it very clearly wasn't for me. I didn't know why. Um, and I don't even know if I sort of knew that it wasn't for me then. I just I obviously wasn't enjoying it. Um, so left there and sort of fell into recruitment, as I think a lot of people explain their journey into recruitment, they kind of fell into it. Um, So I fell into agency recruitment. It was what my brother was doing at the time. It's what two of my housemates were doing at the time. So it seemed like they were having quite a bit of fun. So why not? I'll I'll go and do that. Um, So I started that. I started at Michael Page, so a very big um, recruitment agency. Got some really good training there. It was a great place to start a career, but within 12 months, wasn't especially enjoying what I was doing. Um, as you do, I had a recruitment consultant get in touch. Hey, do you want to come and work at a different agency? Sure, that'll be way more fun. Um, so essentially spent the next three to four years at different recruitment agencies, spending about 11 months at each one until I got to the point where I was like, look, this obviously isn't for me. Like something here isn't working. I'm just keep on moving. I'm not finding kind of job satisfaction there. So I basically got to point, I was working at a exec search firm called The Up Group. Great exec search firm. Like if you're going to enjoy working in exec search, you'd enjoy working there. So obviously something wasn't quite clicking. So basically I gave myself three months. I left the up group and said, right, I need to find something I really enjoy next. Um, So thought about, gave more thought to what I was going to do. I thought, okay, what is it that I want to enjoy? What is it that I'm not enjoying about this? And I think what was relatively clear then, but more clear now was that I didn't want to be in a service organization. I wanted to go and work with different types of people. Like as an accountant, you work pretty much with accountants. With In recruitment, you work with other recruiters. I wanted to go and work with people who did stuff completely different to me. And so having worked the up group, working with a lot of kind of tech startups, it was a bit of a case of, yeah, I want to be in the companies I'm hiring for, not the ones that I'm in. So gave myself three months to sort of try and go and find a job. 
the natural way in for me there was through sales because recruiter to sales is a relatively sort of uh, common path to tread. And somebody that I'd known introduced me to Workable and it was a nice fit. They were looking for someone sort of in sales type role in London. I was looking for a sales type role in a startup tech company. And given what Workable did in recruitment, it was a nice kind of coming together of uh, what they needed and what I was looking for. So that was about nine years ago. The company was about 10 people at that stage. Fast forward nine years, I've spent most of the time at Workable in go-to-market teams or sort of building and growing go-to-market teams. So across sales, marketing partnerships, brief stints working with Spiros, our CTO, on sort of product strategy. Um, so have a good overall view of kind of Workable as a company. I took a short, what we now kindly refer to as my sabbatical early this year, where I went to be um, CEO at a small uh, recruitment startup. That, for many different reasons, none particularly bad, didn't really go as planned. Uh, it wasn't really for me, I don't think. Um, so I came back to Workable. And it was when I came back to Workable that I came back as our CHRO. Um, so looking after HR and recruiting and office management in there as well. So that's kind of how I've got here. I don't think it's typically how people find themselves becoming a CHRO. Um, a few people that I told, typically actually people in recruitment and HR uh, who've known me for a long time, when I told them I was coming back, some of the reactions were just laugh out loud or spit out coffee because I think they were kind of like, how does this happen? Like, how does what you've done before make you a suitable person to do this? And I think that's a legitimate reaction. Um, so it's been an interesting path. I don't think it's been a very typical career path, but it's been one that I've enjoyed. And I think that's important. So yeah, not so short. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was really useful. Thank you. And I think actually uh, there's there's sort of a couple of different kind of routes within a, an HR or, or recruiting career. You've got people who kind of do the fairly traditional route. You know, they do an HRM degree, they get their CIPD, they work their way up to level seven they you know kind of work in companies for sort of five six years at a time move up you know maybe move into a specialism become an HR business partner and, and kind of work their way to sort of that CHRO level that way um, and that's the very traditional way of doing things for sure but I think actually maybe it's my my own sort of very recruitment focused but still quite squiggly career um, coming in here but I you know I've also sort of moved around it's taken me quite a while to kind of find my groove I spent years working in corporate before I sort of clicked onto startups and went actually no this is much more me um for sort of that creative kind of high energy piece and um you know I think actually a lot of for a lot of recruiters and, and HR folk they may wonder you know how do I get to CHRO my background isn't very traditional um like I know recruiters who've worked in you know sort of all sorts of random things they've been in a like touring in a band then worked in wine sales then stumbled across recruitment and now they're you know sort of they've hit their groove um you know I know people who've worked in finance and then thought HR is more fun um, <laughs> um so there's, there's that's, that's a switch <laughs> um so you know uh there's there's lots of different kind of routes actually and I think it is quite interesting to to hear about that journey from somebody who you know, sort of has has sort of tried a, a few different things and, and sort of settled on on CHRO. So I think it's I think it is quite interesting. So thinking about, you know, kind of you've you've done the journey and you're now in the role what, you know, sort of typically um, I think the next question that comes up with it being a fairly new sort of C-suite position is what does a CHRO do? Probably the easy so point. I think some of it, like in terms of sort of the, the remit of the role, like it covers what I would think of as like the essential HR. And it's the fact that Workable has this in place that allows me to do the job I'm doing, really. Like, I wouldn't put me in charge of running payroll at a company because it would break. And to be blunt, like, some of that stuff, which isn't always the most visible to employees or the most glamorous, is some of the most important work that happens at a company because it's the stuff that actually enables people to do their job without worrying, like, am I going to get paid at the end of the month? Like, Am I going to have the right facilities and infrastructure to do my job? And so I think that is the first piece. That's the essential layer. It's the stuff that almost you've got to be doing right and doing very well to earn the right to go on to some of the sort of more, perhaps what people think of more of the exciting stuff in HR. And so that's when you can kind of get to the, when you're looking at things like sort of objective grading systems and performance reviews and this stuff, which... Okay, some people may not find that interesting from a, I've had to do them before, but actually designing those and understanding, well, how can you create a very objective 
ranking system for staff so they're being reviewed fairly like that's actually quite a sort of dense and quite long process to work out how to do that and so you start getting more into the realm of not just how do we make sure the company runs but how do we make sure the company runs very well and that means it works well for the people in it which is going to be good for the business as well and so they're kind of like the first two stages so first have you got the essential HR, right? Second, are you starting to think about not just that stuff, but how we can actually help improve how the company operates? Then I think the third piece, and this is where sort of, I think more of my focus is a sort of the CHRO working with our VP of HR, Melissa, who set up everything else, is actually expanding kind of on what people operations means for a company like Workable. Um, and we're a 280 person company, we're 10 years old. So we're not a really young company now, but we're still a company that's growing and we've matured a lot along that time so we've got those essential hr practices we've got those objective sort of compensation benefits bonus structures organized but we're still growing and maturing in other areas as well so things like uh learning and developments so we've just hired our first sort of dedicated l d role so dan who's just joined us as senior l d manager who's got a lot of experience from growth companies from corporates around L&D. So that's a role for us where we want to bring those skills in. Like that's something we just need to sort of buy into the company through that hire. So that will be something that looks at onboarding, the ongoing learning and development, creating what we kind of refer to as our like workable university, where we kind of help people understand how a company like Workable, a B2B SaaS company operates, how career development pathing can develop from where we've got it. All of these things are in quite a good place. In fact, a lot of them are in a really good place for a company our size, but it's usually from where the teams have created them themselves. So it's kind of organically grown. Now, typically that means it happens in the teams that are biggest and been around the longest. So support, sales, engineering. So how do we make sure that every team at Workable has a very sort of good baseline for what onboarding looks like, for what career development looks like. I think we do it well, but this is something we're really focusing on a lot more over the next sort of year or two as well. Um, we're not planning on being like a one, 2,000 person company. That's not the goal here. We want to be a company of a few hundred, very kind of highly motivated, smart people who are able to do really good work. And that's what we want to focus on. And so that's kind of that sort of shift there. I think the other thing is thinking about our culture. Um, so we have like our first employee handbook coming out, which may, some people may feel is a bit late after sort of 10 years, but actually as a company, we've always found it difficult to kind of label what we do or kind of who we are. Like kind of in my sense, like we don't have neon signs in the office saying, do what you love. Like it's taken us time to make sure that how we think about how we operate kind of has come organically around, okay, well, this is actually how we've done it. These are the decisions we have made. So let's codify that now into an employee handbook rather than saying, how do we want to do it and writing that down? Um, so there's there's this kind of thing as well. And then performance management. So we have sort of a high performance culture at Workable, which for some people can sound sort of cutthroat. It's absolutely not. It's really around sort of caring very deeply for the people you look at, but then think about how do we structure sort of company team and individual goals. Um, we're actually quite, I think for a company that's quite advanced in how we do sort of goal setting, particularly around the tracking and reporting. We've always been a very data-led sort of data savvy business, um, but how do we get alignment sort of across all the teams? So how does someone in an engineering role know they're working towards the same goal as somebody who's working in sales and how can we visualize that? Um, so that's that's a big sort of piece of work. And that's where you start thinking around kind of OKRs and different frameworks for that. And then I think the final part for us is sort of remote work. So we went sort of hybrid when COVID came. So pre-COVID, Workable was actually a pretty office-based company. We had very nice offices in Athens, in London, in Boston. We invested a lot in them to make sure they were very comfortable spaces so that people didn't have to worry about anything they could just come to work be in a great environment with their colleagues and get on with what they wanted to do which was was their work um when covid came obviously you got forced into a big experiment right which was okay you're not allowed to use an office now good luck like go and work from home and see what happens and what happened for us is that it went pretty well like productivity didn't go down arguably like i think a lot of companies saw a sort of an increase but we certainly knew it wasn't going down and people liked it like they liked the flexibility that it offered. Um, so we kept it. So we don't have our full like 200 person offices, but we now have sort of hubs in each of those locations. We still have our big HQ in Athens, but we have a sort of a WeWork in Boston. We have a WeWork in London, the office in Athens. So people can come and go as they please. So we don't dictate 
how many days they should come in or which days they should come in. It's just, if you want to use an office space, there's one there for you to use or if teams want to get together for training. So that's great. And I think it's a very nice thing to go, oh, fantastic, it's worked. But I think what a lot of companies are finding is that if you're not proactive about how you think about the company operating in that environment, the honeymoon can quickly end. Because working in that environment where people aren't always in the office comes with different challenges. The way you worked in an office don't naturally translate. So think about how can we enable managers to be great managers in the hybrid world as good as they were in the office-based world. And that, I think, does require sort of proactive thought. I think if you just kind of let it happen, like I think people will start to realize they're sort of they're picking up a lot of like people debt is a nice term that I've kind of heard sort of used. And I think that builds up if you're not proactive about it. So that's something else that I'm thinking about sort of for the company how are we proactive and think about how we can make sure that this hybrid works for us? Because we have no intention of going back to being office-based. So it's very much, okay, let's make the investment in making this work. So that's the stuff I'm focusing on. I think to try and sum that up, and I'll stop talking in a minute as well, um, is like, you've got to, first, you've got, you've got to earn the right to work on that other stuff. I think I mentioned that before, like HR, the most important thing is other things working. My biggest fear when I took over this job was breaking stuff was coming in and breaking something so that people didn't get paid. So I didn't touch anything for a few weeks. I just wanted to watch and see what we did and learn from the people who are in the team already um, so that I kind of knew, okay, I'm comfortable now. We're not going to break stuff because I'm not going to touch it. And that's great. Um, and so then we can focus on a bit more of the other things. But the other stuff always comes first. Making sure employees get paid is always going to be the top priority for the team. Yeah, it's there's so much that goes on behind the scenes with with an HR role. And it's so easy to forget that if you sort of mess up those behind the scenes things, people don't get paid um, and they'll, they won't, you know, you don't necessarily even as, as you know, sort of I'm as well sat in an HR role. I don't necessarily think about it all the time, but then every now and then, particularly at Zinc, you know, we're, we've gone from, we were eight people in January, uh, we're 21 people, uh, as of today, it's 22 next week. Um, just, just a little brag. Awesome. Um, <laughs> I've been busy. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, sort of even even now, sort of I, I get the odd question and it's just sort of like, hey, uh, how do we get payslips? I've, I've not had any and I've realized that they've not been getting their payslips emailed to them um, when they should have been. Um, and I'm like, oh, right. Shoot. Um, yeah. that sorted <laughs> Which, and I bet the first few employees were like, eh. But eh. as you scale, like some of these things start to become exactly. like, issues that weren't. And yeah, exactly. I think that's it's one of those challenges of scaling. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's it's of course a, a very different journey at, at twenty one people. Um, when we can just, and I mean just, we're we're really pushing our luck now. Fit all around one table, um, but it's, <laughs> I think we're probably a couple more highs, and and that won't be the case. But um, you know, it's of course very different when you're you're over two hundred people in multiple offices. Um, but yeah, I think the hybrid approach is, you know, I mean that's how we work at Zinc as well. Uh, it's been it's it's how just i personally like to work so obviously when i was looking yeah. for a job that's what i was thinking about so it's a little bit i didn't stumble into it by accident but certainly uh, where I, where i was working when the pandemic hit it was you know five days a week in the office i just topped up my uh my oyster card with a, a one month travel card um and then used it for three days and didn't leave the house again for, for three months yeah. <laughs> I had the uh, the annual travel card, the annual, well, not even travel card, like the commutes from Surrey to London. So yep. I remember like when I paid for that at the beginning of the year, then like two months in, ah, that's not so useful. So the right. refund on that yeah. was, uh, was, was helpful. I was quite pleased they did that because that was yeah. a bit of a hit. Yeah, that, yeah, I've, uh, I used to live in Surrey actually in, in commute and yeah, it's, uh, it's a sizable chunk um, of, of, yeah, it's, um, yeah, good to get it refunded. I think that the interesting thing with with the hybrid is that like okay one of the one of the problems with I mean not just HR it's just the problem with business in general is bloggers and Twitter um, where basically if you went on there or you went on LinkedIn and looked at your feed you'd think that there was some right answer about how to work that like yeah. either office based is right or remote is best or hybrid is best and it's like there's just pros and cons to each one it's not sort of yeah. that this is so much better than the other one and I think like, I know people who've been saying like I just want to work in an office I don't want to work from home and I totally get it whether that's just because they want to interact with people or because the home just isn't set up to work yeah. from 
like it's not that easy like I've got yeah. quite a noisy seven-year-old outside who's kind of quite possibly going to start shouting at some point because they do like that's yep. fine um but that doesn't always work so yeah it's it's really a preference like yeah. and a worker we prefer hybrid now we know that there'll be people who don't want to do that now I think it's sort of we're lucky that it's sort of almost the best of every world like if you want to work in an office sure we got one yeah. you want to work at home crack on you want to do a bit of both fine but there'll be people who say well no I want to go to an office where there's like everyone like okay cool probably not for us then like you probably don't yeah. want to work at work in that case and that has to be okay you just have to accept that like some people won't want to work the way you do but you've got to choose and then invest in it like I think it's it is hard like managing hybrid isn't straightforward to some extent either being fully remote or fully in the office might be a bit easier because you just yeah. go completely remote first or completely office first and you don't have to worry about anything in between whereas with hybrid you've got to think well there are people going to the office so yeah we do have to fit out the office and think about things like ordering snacks and making sure it's yeah. thing but then also we've got people who never go in so we have to make sure that works and i know for for us um our director of sort of business systems panos like that's a big thing for him at the moment it's kind of yeah. looking at the tooling of the company like what software and what tools are we using and is that are they the right tools now that we're hybrid because a lot of those are ones we sort of started using when yeah. we were office based so how do we do that going forward and thinking about kind of how hybrid impacts that so there's yeah there's a there's a lot to it but i think yeah you've got to pick what works for you and what you like to do to some extent yeah. um as opposed to like reading too many of the blog posts which are typically wrote, written by people who are influencers who need to build an audience or companies selling stuff that need to build an audience which would make yeah. it look a lot more sort of polarizing than it really is I think yeah yeah the truth is always sort of in that gray area in the middle um I I think you know I noticed it was really interesting for me at the start of the pandemic I had a you know flat to myself um so it was quite easy for me to work from home um, which obviously is a, a privilege, you know, no noisy kids running around, no, no grumpy housemates, yeah. um, uh, commandeering the kitchen. But it could be lonely, work. right? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was <laughs> really happy to go back to the office. Um, I, I, I couldn't wait. First chance I got, um, I was, you know, masked up and, and on the tube, uh, couldn't wait. Um, cause I went a little bit stir crazy. Um, but equally I had colleagues who, love the idea of working remotely and and sort of were typically in you know like tech roles where you expect there's a bit more of a bias towards um working from home but actually they lived in you know they they rented the smallest bedroom in in a big house share to save money because we're in central london um and you do that when you're in your 20s um so because they figured well i'm not going to be at home much am i i'm going to be working and then i'm going to be out and about so who cares and then all of a sudden they realized actually they very much cared like with with people who would move to London, like I did the sort of thing a lot of people do, right? You sort of grew up outside London, and then when it came to getting a job, I moved to London because I thought that's what you do. But also, like, because it's kind of a cool city to be in when you're young, like a good place to be. So I do kind of feel for like the the sort of people who are younger than me, kind of people entering the career who did that, who moved to London, got a job, and then were told, oh, actually, you're going to work from home. And it's like, okay, so I've moved to London, so I kind of enjoy this sort of very sociable life in my early twenties, and and honestly, like. I remember like back when I sort of graduated, who was I social with? Like sure it was friends from sort of school and uni who'd moved to London as well, but a lot of my friends that I was making were at work. And I made them because we were in an office. Like it put you together and you met people, not just the people you worked with who, yeah, you'll be on video calls with when you go from home, but people in other departments and other teams that you met at the like canteen at lunchtime or on a social that you went out. Like I do feel like they missed out there. Like that whole thing kind of goes. And you're like, well, now I'm just paying for a really expensive London flat, but not actually getting that experience. So I totally get why different people say like, yeah, I want to go to the office. Like it's, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're absolutely spot on and, and recruiting now as I do, uh, a lot of people are that I speak to because we are hybrid and you know we're pretty upfront about that on our, our job descriptions and things like that so people who want fully remote you know it's just, it's just sort of you know not for we're not for them anyway which is fine but the people I do speak to really kind of want to make sure like you you do have like some days in the office like I can sit and work with the team um you know I really miss that in lockdown um and I want to make sure that you know, I, I work in sort of quite a social company where where people, you know, interact in person as well. And 
you know, I personally like the balance. I like being able to have a, a couple of days at home where I can, you know, basically I'll just spend it all on calls really. But yeah. um, that's what ends up happening because uh, there's no distractions. I don't have to worry about booking a meeting room and all of that, which is great. And then on my office days, it's it's mostly sort of interacting in person, meetings, taking a little bit long at lunch, um, all of that good stuff with the team. It's, yeah, it's, um, it is an interesting one. Something you mentioned there, like, that sort of idea that you're not fully remote, that you're all sort of fully hybrid. Like I, I struggle at the moment with just the naming conventions about what these things are. So like a real life example, it doesn't sound like the biggest challenge and perhaps it's not the biggest challenge that we're going to face with hybrid, but describing it on your careers page and job descriptions. So we're not fully remote. Like we have, we have a couple of fully remote employees. It's, it's rare. Um, what we think of as remote at Workable is really you're based more than, say, 50 miles from one of our hubs in Boston, Athens or London. Um, so but that's really an internal naming category that just helps with some sort of travel policies and training policies and things like that. It's nothing that means anything to a candidate. So if you say to someone, yeah, we've we, we you can do remote work. It sounds like, oh, yeah, you can go to Bali and then the next week you could be in this because we work completely asynchronously. We don't like that doesn't work for us because we're not set up to have someone who's sort of nomadically moving across the, the world. And um, we have a very flexible approach Like we can hire in a number of states in the US. We can hire pretty much anywhere in Greece or the UK, but it's not what I would define as fully remote. And then if you call it hybrid, I think hybrid and I, I don't know whether I've got this perception wrong, but my my understanding is that when most people hear hybrid, they expect there to be some a requirement about the number of days you go in. Like, yeah, we're hybrid, so we go in two days. Maybe you can pitch, pick which two days, or maybe it's always Tuesday and Wednesday, but there's some kind of um, dictation of when you go in or how often you go in, which we don't. It's We have an office. You can use it if you like. If you don't want to use it, you can work from home that whole time. But you can't just say we work from home because I don't think that's something anybody understands either so when we were putting updating our careers pages like well how do we actually explain this like without going into the complete minutiae of like here's the states you can live in in the US here's where you can move here's where you can live in Greece like that's detail that we don't need to put there but we kind of want people to understand how flexible it is I don't think there is a word yet or there is a way to separate hybrid where you have to go in a couple of days and hybrid where it's just as you call it like fully hybrid like proper hybrid like sort of whatever we call it and so it does make it like little things like that difficult like we're not remote we're not that type of hybrid we're this type of hybrid that's a copywriting challenge that exists for us now that didn't exist when we just said you'll be based in this office in london nice yeah. and easy uh, like that was that was simpler um yeah, so yeah there's some really yeah it's it's a tricky one i um because i also rejigged our careers page recently and I think I came up with just sort of managed to condense it into sort of one short ish sentence kind of explaining we work two days a week from the office in London. This may change in future, but it's going to stay like that for the foreseeable. Um, but, you know, we're human beings and we're flexible for when, you know, life happens. Um, yeah. Sort of that kind of thing. Um, but we do like the in-person interaction. Um, it is interesting, though. I think... Um, the most enthusiastic uh, office attendees uh, at Zinc anyway are actually the tech team. Um, and they really That's enjoy it. Which, when you think about the stereotype, you'd expect uh, yeah. the opposite to be true, which is really, I think it's really interesting. Uh, it is, because I think there's there's so much of that stereotyping around kind of engineering and non-engineering roles, like yeah. whether it's to do with kind of how they enjoy working or yeah. how they do it or how we have to treat them differently because they're kind of so important and they are but everyone is right but it's yeah. that idea like that people try and put them in a box like, oh they're, they'll like remote work and it's like no like some of them will some of them won't much like your sales team who you think are going to be the ones because they're all obviously going to be extroverts because they're in sales which is a bit of a nonsense but yeah <laughs> maybe they're not like, I know plenty of sales yeah. people like I was one like my last job at work was running the sales team I love working from home I do like going in and seeing the team I like to keep that kind of human relationship but yeah I want to be working from home and I think if we look to the numbers of how many people go in, yeah, most of the sales team don't go in every day. Um, yeah. They are sort of happy working from home. So I think it's one thing we can thank, like the acceleration of kind of working from home and hybrid working is that it has helped to sort of squash some of those stereotypes, which seemed uh, a little bit skin deep initially anyway. Yeah. And I think as, you know, sort of working in, in HR, you, 
it's it's different in every business because um, I've worked in plenty of businesses where the stereotype very stereotypes very much hold true. But it's um, it's I think it's quite interesting because you've got to then consider all of these little nuances every single day and for every single decision you make. And um, because as you know, CHRO, you're you know you're serving sort of the entire business and and kind of thinking um, you know thinking about how the decisions you make impacts every single team and all of their little nuances and and it's you know it's a lot to take on all at once and um thinking thinking about sort of how you apply that what what kind of skills did you sort of develop over your career that are really coming into play and like really helping you in your role now so I think so thinking about kind of my background and and how it helps me in this role because it's not obviously my CIPD qualification, which doesn't exist. So why, like, another way to think, like, why did Nikos and Spiros go, this is a good idea? Like, why did they want someone from that with my background to do this? And I think one of the main ones is that I come from an operational background, which means I have that kind of very firsthand experience of what it means to build high-performance teams. Um, at work, well, I've moved around quite a lot, so I've kind of... I've never run like a hundred person teams, like probably the maximum is around kind of 30, 35 people. But a lot of the time it was starting it or growing something a bit bigger than it was kind of the zero to one or sort of grow something a bit bigger, formalize it, like take something that was happening at Workable and turn it into a team or turn it into a process or operation. So I think that operational experience, experience and having done it in different areas of the company gives me a very good understanding of that, what it takes to build and run high performing teams. And really like that's a big focus of what I'm doing now. Um, how do we take the whole company and make it a very high performing company? Now it, it is, I'm not saying like we're kind of going, oh God, we need to make this high performing, but it's really like you've always got to invest in that, right? Um, you've got to invest in the people who are doing it, the frameworks that you've got in place, you've got to organize stuff, mature some things. So that operational background, I think, is what appeals to Nikos and Spiros around having me in this role. Um, but there's also then just some stuff. I've been at Workable a long time. So I joined when we were about 10 people. So most of the people that I work with now, like the stakeholders in some of the stuff that we're doing, I've known for a long time. A lot of our leaders have been at the company for over five years. So I've usually worked directly with them in one of my roles. And that covers, although I've not been in like the product or engineering team, really, um, I've worked with them from product marketing or from sales. So I think there's a level of trust there that really helps that if you're coming in as a sort of outside hire, it takes a bit longer to earn that credibility. Like I think people have seen that I've cared a lot about the company, uh, been relatively loyal bar the sabbatical early this year, um, and also cared a lot about the teams that I've run. Like, so I think hopefully people have seen that. And I think that helps as well so that kind of operational background just the fact that i've been here a long time to build those relationships and obviously then to do that if melissa hadn't done what she'd done and the team hadn't done what they'd done to build those foundations i couldn't have done it like you couldn't i don't think i think it'd been very hard to bring in someone with my background into this role if some of the essential hr stuff that has to work that really important stuff we swear for didn't exist because i think there i would You'd effectively, you'd probably be set up to fail and just drown in some of that stuff. Like, if I had to try and work out how to implement a 401k policy in the US, I'd probably spend about two months trying to work out what it was, who does it. Like, this wouldn't be a very good use of someone like me. So I think whether it's a prerequisite, I don't know. But what I definitely know is that I'm very lucky that at Workable, that was in place because I'm pretty sure it was an enabler to me coming in. Um, but yeah, I think those are the the three things, that operational background, those existing relationships that I had built, the foundations that we've got as well. I think that's really what kind of meant that this was a pretty good fit. And they're the skills that really kind of help me now, I think. Yeah, oh, that's really cool. It's quite interesting for me as well, because I think about it, you, you mentioned you joined when workable were about 10 people I joined Zinc when uh I was employee number 10 so it's uh nice. like, mm, taking notes um <laughs> <laughs> which is quite cool but I think yeah the the foundational stuff's really important and you can't you can't sort of beat the the quality of, of relationships for getting stuff done because I think so much of so much of what we do is is sort of based on trust um and it's one of those sort of HR can be one of those roles when the relationship's not there, um, where people think they can kind of just do it. Um, and yeah. sort of think it's easy, but actually when you dig into it, you you see all of those nuances and things and 
you realize actually no it's 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 quite a lot um it's best to to sort of uh leave it to to sort of the the hr thing to do um so i was gonna say like with that i mean it's sort of cliche in any role right that you've got to know where your weaknesses are and then also you've got to be very comfortable hiring people better than you now i haven't had to hire the team because it's there already it's been hired but without a doubt they're better at me than me at this stuff and that's great like and i think if you're not comfortable with that, then you're going to struggle getting to any C-level job, to be honest, because yeah. that's, I think, how most people get there is you hire yeah. really good people, help them do really good work, and that's how you progress, really. Um, yeah. But I think it is, it's key for someone with my type of background going in there um, that you're very happy with that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that was just yeah something you mentioned that resonated. Definitely. Yeah, I think, um, you know, sort of when we're talking to people here at Zinc about career progression, and particularly for those who want to move towards or you know if it's maybe not their their role for their time at zinc but you know their next role maybe um whatever it is they do they they want to move towards leadership one of the things we always say that you've done really nicely and illustrated beautifully uh, throughout this the, throughout this uh, episode is that whole piece around recognizing people that are sort of doing what you're you know sort of doing things better than you um conferring kudos and and being sort of really willing to give praise i think that's such an important such a critical part of being a, a great leader um and i think it's an essential skill for anybody who's who's interested in in moving into any leadership role not just a, a chro um but i do i do really agree with you there and it's something we always iterate to anybody at, at zinc who sort of discusses that with their their manager about wanting to to kind of become a future leader yeah. there's one of one of the things like one of the questions and i'm sure you get this question a lot as well i think everyone probably in hr does or anyone who's in a sort of leadership role like people who want to become leaders and I get it like that's it's a natural kind of career progression thing like you do some stuff then you manage some people doing it then you become a leader of a team with many people doing like it makes sense but what I found is that the people I work with who who get there aren't the people who are rushing to be that leader like they're not kind of going like okay how do I become a manager next year and like that's the first question they ask in their weekly one-to-one every time like when do I get promoted when do I become a manager like you do it by doing really good work like that's what to focus on like if you're in a company that values good people that has sort of structures in place like do the good work and it will come i think it's not to say that being kind of ambitious and wanting to become a leader is a bad thing it's just not a very good thing to be your main focus because that's the that's where you're getting to like if you're driving to paris and paris is the becoming a manager like you can't just ask someone how to get to paris because like you can't fly there you've got a lot of milestones you've got to hit on the way you've got to get a car you've got to drive to Dover, you've got to get on the ferry, get to Calais, and then find a way. Like those are the milestones that are important. So talk about those things. Like, how do I improve? Basically, how do I get to that next thing? And that will lead ultimately to lovely Paris. Um, but if the question is, yeah, how do I get to Paris? You're asking the wrong things, really. Yeah, I think I'd agree there. I have definitely been guilty of of that impatience earlier in my career. Uh, wanting to be you know uh president of the free world um you know straight out of uni like we, you'd we, be great we, we've all we've all done it um and it's been interesting yeah, until, yeah I feel like I've I've got much further in my career by taking a deep breath and just doing the work and, and letting it speak for itself um and and kind of just going on it, it took me it took me a little while to get there so if anyone's listening and thinking oh no um that's me um don't worry uh there's plenty there's plenty of time um it's you know very much kind of a, a marathon and uh, not a sprint um and i do love paris so i know i'll enjoy it when i get there yeah. um <laughs> so um, thinking about kind of uh working at a scale up um i sort of jump ahead a little bit here um but you know what what are your kind of priorities for the next six months as you're sort of you're kind of you've been in the role a couple of months now you've you kind of got yourself sort of established and, and kind of know what goes where and when um so what what do you kind of want to do in the next six months so i think like the, the scale up questions are really good so i think at a company at our kind of level what i think we find i think a lot of companies are find is that in a lot of areas um whether that's sort of developing your culture, L&D, sort of operational efficiency, that kind of thing. Um, A lot of the stuff that's in place has grown organically. Like I mentioned earlier, like it's grown because certain teams have grown and put stuff in place. Um, So one part of it is actually just looking across the business and looking at, okay, where's the best practice happening? And how can we turn that best practice that's happening in the product team to something 
everyone at the company can benefit from um because then we're not trying to reinvent the wheel everywhere so like uh, one example is like onboarding like at a company that's grown sort of to the size that we have a lot of the teams created their own onboarding which is great like it's just something they'll do naturally but then there's a point where you get okay well what can we learn from the support team we've been doing this at a large scale for a long time what are the product team doing that we can learn from as well so putting in some stuff there so i think that's approach to a lot of different areas is consistent across what we're looking at. I think when I think about the sort of next six months, the employee handbook and the things that come along with that is important. Um, L&D is a big focus. So uh, Dan, who's the senior L&D manager, putting together what that timeline looks like. Um, so we're, I would say we, Dan, is looking at creating that management training, um, which we'll bring out in Q4. And then looking, at, okay, what is that sort of L&D I mean, effectively bringing in a learning management system, what does that look like for every employee at Workable? Like what content do we need there? What training do we need to have for people? What are they asking for? Like we know people want management training, so that's going to be a priority, but what else do we um, actually need to sort of create there as well? So that's a big focus. Um, developing that performance culture. And I think that's really like that performance culture exists, but you've got to be able to codify it and then kind of not market it across the business, but you've got to start talking about it. Like you can't have it and just sort of have it in a deck that a few people see and you've actually got to then start talking about it. And what does it actually mean? Um, so that's a focus as well. That comes into things like the employee handbook. Like how do you make sure people are aware of it? Well, put it in the document that everyone who starts a workable is going to see. And obviously that document is going to get shared to all the existing employees so they can have a look through as well. Um, so developing that performance culture, L&D is a big focus, making that investment in our people over the next few years. And then other ways, sort of the third bigger category would be like supporting that operational efficiency of the company. So that can be working with Paniotis, who's sort of on the business systems side. It can be looking at things like goal setting frameworks like OKRs and OKRs isn't definitely the right one for us, but when I kind of think about okay, making sure we've got a common shared language about what a metric is, what a KPI is versus what a goal and what a target is and how are these all leading in the same direction and some of that piece that I think we do a lot of work, really good work with, but again, some of it's sort of created from a silo, so we need to bring that together. So I think those for me are the most important pieces, looking at that, driving that performance culture, looking at that investment in our existing people and then supporting that operational efficiency of the company. Um, they're the yeah. three main ones. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And yeah, I mean, that we've started to sort of like try and experiment a bit with that on a much smaller scale, of course, with the, we started running OKRs this year and it has been oh, wow. really helpful to understand not just sort of, I mean, I, I kind of know the sort of the, the talent HRE type person, like my goals are fairly straightforward at this size. It's just hire people, really, um, and make sure people are, are happy about their interviews um, and, and think we're a nice place to work. Um, but even unpacking that, there's a lot in there, right? Yeah, there's so much you can do to actually make all of that happen. And, and you know, I've been, it's been great um, sort of having the, the remit to just kind of dig into that and, and sort of have a bit of an experiment and, you know, sort of try things, pass things, fail things, whatever, and and keep moving but then seeing how one thing we did on our, our company retreat earlier this year which I think was really interesting was we built um kind of like a logic tree to sort of understand how everybody's individual actions that contribute to their OKRs then build up into sort of one of our our big OKRs for for this year um and then sort of seeing how everybody all sort of contributes and and sort of intersects with each other um and from there it's when we were building out our OKRs like we were able to really get a good idea of, of sort of how all of our work impacts each other and how we can better collaborate and things like that. And it was, yeah, it was a really, really interesting task. Um, Do, how did you find, because that's a really like rolling out OKRs, I think like having that framework from early on when you're sort of 21 people where just rolling out some of that isn't, I mean, it's, I know it's not easy because like one of the biggest challenges with OKRs is just setting them. It's yeah. like actually how do you kind of separate an objective from a key result from the initiative? Yeah. Like that isn't easy, whatever size, but rolling it out to 21 people, like trying to roll it out to 280, like it's a huge undertaking. Yeah. Like it's just like, you have to be very conscious about what you're about to step into doing that. Like that's going to take people away from doing something else. Yeah. So it's interesting, like, do you, is that sort of managed on spreadsheets for you? Do you use a tool, like an OKR management tool? Is it done in your performance management tool? Like, how, how do you implement that on a kind of day-to-day, -day, weekly basis? 
Yeah, so um, we manage it in Notion. Now, I have to uh, confess that it sort of is is largely kind of really owned by our chief of staff, Sam, who's he's brilliant at this stuff. Um, but I'm a big fan of it as well. So um, we document it all in, in Notion. Um, and then what we do is we sit down once a quarter to do kind of the actual goal setting. Um, we give people, you know, sort of maybe about two weeks to kind of work on them, set them. We do um, a weekly uh, weekly kind of goals meeting at the start of the week where we talk about what we want to achieve in that week. And one of the things that we make really important for that meeting is that the goals that we're, you know, sort of uh, setting for the week, how do they measure, you know, how do they measure up? How do they contribute to our OKRs to keep things moving? Um, making sure that we're attaching kind of numbers to them. So for me, it's I want to speak to five developers this week. Um and and you know or i've got some final stage interviews so i want to put out you know two offers this week um and that contributes nice. to, to sort of my hiring goals um just as a really easy example and then you know sort of we have uh you know sort of more uh sort of more uh infrequent but you know regularly scheduled sort of quarterly catch-ups um with each team to sort of check in with how they're getting on um do they think that the goals that they've set are realistic you know are there any sort of blockers um sort of we make sure that we're covering off um when we're looking at our, our sort of weekly goals and things like that so it does help keep things moving and keeps you constantly kind of like mindful of of what you're doing and how you're contributing to the team's akrs um which is really helpful um we did run a little incentive last last quarter as well for q2 so if we hit all of our okrs then uh, we got half day Fridays for Q3, which has been brilliant. Nice. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah, it was quite, it was, that, that was a good news day. Um, yeah. finding out just like, cool. So great news. We're actually on a half day today. Congrats. So, uh, and we'll be That's for the awesome. rest of the quarter. Um, so we've been enjoying that. So it, it just keeps people really engaged with it. Um, and, um, you know, sort of, we usually dedicate, uh, sort of a, an offsite day to setting them and, and, you know, sort of talking about them and, and making sure that we're all kind of understanding like what each team is doing and why. And it's really helpful because it enables that kind of customer feedback, client feedback to sort of tech. Um, and then sort of from, from my part anyway, understanding sort of like where all of these things are coming in, I can then think, okay, well, this fits in with our hiring plan or the hiring plan needs a bit of a tweak or, you know sort of things like that or even just thinking like do i hire a full stack developer that's front end focused or back end focused um is really helpful yeah that alignment is yeah so key but i think it's essentially like when you mentioned like the example you gave sort of how many developers i want to speak to this week like said that's an easy example or like it's an easy one i'm like i'm not sure it is like i think for people starting that process of like setting weekly goals which i don't think a lot of people do i think a lot of people might know I want this to have happened by the end of the week. Like I want to have hired a developer, but not necessarily gone back and well, how do I break that down? Like what do I actually need to do to to get there? So I think it's actually, it's harder than it looks on the surface to do that sort of goal setting. But it sounds like like the way that you've sort of implemented it, I mean, you have the, I think a similar sort of approach to us as kind of to offsite. So we have the annual retreat as well to kind of get everyone together. Now we've done it sort of, since we were 10, 20 people, we still do it. Now we're kind of 280. It's got somewhat more expensive and lavish over that time, but it still serves a very good purpose. And it's a mix of sort of work and updates and alignment, kind of getting people sort of to understand what's what's happening in the business, but also it's just the social side. It's just those relationships you build on those retreats really help day to day. And it's not just about, oh, it helps the company reach its goals better every day. Like it does, but also it just makes it more enjoyable. Like it's way nicer to work with someone that you've kind of had dinner with and been to a beach with and done something that isn't just looking at a spreadsheet together. Um, I personally, anyway, like maybe not for everyone, but for me, I found that that's really helpful. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. Like, I think one of the the coolest things like Zinc have been like when I joined Zinc, like, well, you know, sort of uh, just come off the back of an operation. Like I was still like a little bit wobbly getting back into the world of work and, and thinking about things again. And uh, I found the retreat really helpful because sort of like just to kind of uh, get back into, you know, sort of more of the social aspect, like the work bit was sort of easier, but, you know, kind of the actual interacting in person and, and, you know, kind of getting back into to sort of getting to know people um, when, when actually sort of a lot of the time I, I was shattered at the end of the work day. So I, you know, if I was in the office, I didn't want to go out, um for a social or you know sort of there were things that I just 
oh, not quite ready for. So it was, you know, really helpful um, and really good fun. And it's been really exciting as well, um, thinking about, you know, kind of how the team's going to grow and, and what it's going to look like next year. And I know that people that have joined since are, are really excited for next year as well, which is awesome. Um, so, yeah, cool. Um, so I'm actually going to, I'm going to sort of pivot uh, a little bit. Um, and and next up, actually, yeah, going to shift it a bit and wanted to talk about a couple of tweets you shared. So one was recent and one was a few years ago. Uh, and I think they both speak to how much you've enjoyed your time with Workable. And what I want to then kind of um, think about is, you know, sort of they kind of show that, that you recognize that Workable is a great company for you. But also it'd be great to understand, like, when did you know that Workable was kind of the the work edition of the one, um, for want of a better phrase? Um, <laughs> um, so one of the tweets um, you posted on the 2nd of August this year, and it was, find the company you thrive in and stay. Have fun. Help others thrive there too. That's the secret, which I love. Um, and then a slightly later one as well um, from 2014 was 7pm on a Friday. You can hear people in the bar downstairs whilst you're sat up in the office and you're not jealous. You're in the right job. Um, definitely a pre-pandemic tweet. Um, yeah. <laughs> you're very pre. That's, yeah, that's, that's an ageing yourself tweet, that one from 2014. Um, but, you know, it, it sort of demonstrates that, you know, across across that time period, you know, you still recognise Workable as, as being a, a place that you're really happy working at. So, you know, for a lot of people, especially people in HR and recruitment, actually, it does tend to be a role where, you know, sort of due to the way that business cycles kind of change and grow and scale and, you know, all of that good stuff, you know, maybe you don't, people don't spend as long um, in their role as they might do if they were, say, an accountant um, or worked in marketing or, you know, sort of things like that. So, you know, what would you recommend to people who are thinking about, you know, what do I need to look for? When do I know I'm in a great company that I should stay in? You know, what, what did that look like for you with Workable? Yeah, so I think the, the trouble is, like, it's really hard to do when, you, when you're interviewing. Like, unless you know people who work at the company, like, well, like, it's a sort of, it's a referral. Like, it's very hard in a sort of, what can often be like a two, three week long process where you get to meet a few people to really kind of assess something, which is a huge decision. Like, for me, if you could take a job and you're there for like less than two years, nobody's really winning there like you haven't won like you're not there really long enough to I don't think like really sort of develop like that shouldn't be the goal to be somewhere for two years like hopefully you can stay somewhere longer um I say that knowing that I've job hopped a lot early on so it doesn't always work that way but that's something that I think I've learned over time but also for the company you employ it's not really a win either if someone if you're turning people over like every 18 months 24 months so it's a big decision it is quite hard to do in the interview process but I think when I look back and go, okay, like you said, like, what is it that meant Workable has been a place that I've wanted to work for nine years and then wanted to come back to, and that was like the easiest decision ever to come back. Um, and I don't advocate for like, definitely don't go somewhere and think, great, I'm going to work here at 7pm on a Friday. I rarely do it. I will say that. Um, I probably did it a little bit more in the early days when we were 10 people. Um, I think to some extent, it's part of that stage of company. Part of it was I was in my early-ish 20s, I think. Um, and so you could, like, my commitments were different back then. But the real thing was, like, I enjoyed what I was doing. Like, that was really important. I enjoyed what I was doing. I was working people that I liked working with. And I think most importantly, I was working with or for people who cared about you. Like, that, I think, is the biggest thing um, that matters um, for me that makes that that interesting. So when I, when I look back, like, how did I know that? workable was that company i didn't when i joined like at the time like i'd maybe spoke to nikos who was in greece and i was in london so i'd probably spoken to him once maybe twice before i went to greece to meet the team i met the team there during a kind of a day so i met nikos i probably met spiros i met thanos who's our coo i met mirto who was our uh, customer success manager then who's only just left the the company so she was here for a very long time as well so i met a few people and in that time it made sense to go to that role but could i say like hand on heart back then i knew this was somewhere i was gonna be for nine years no i got lucky like to some extent with that process but i think if i was going through that process again which to some extent i did early this year like what is it that i would say to someone 
if they're about to move role, like what should you be asking? Like, okay, yes, you need to understand the job you're doing to see if that sounds interesting. Like that's kind of a given, that's fine. But how can you better understand if this is somewhere you're gonna wanna spend four or five years, not one or two? For me, like ask the people that you're interviewing with, what motivates them? Like, what is it that they enjoy about working at that company? Um, because I think that the motivation that people have is sometimes more important to find out during the interview process than the work you'll be doing. Like partly because I know that that will be covered by the job description, by the recruiter. It's probably a job. You've done something similar before. So you probably know kind of what it looks like, but you won't know what motivates them. Um, and I think that's where, when I think of our employee handbook, like one goal for me is that, okay, we've got the employee handbook now. We'll launch it. It's final draft stage. We will launch it soonish. Um, and then we're, we're going to get some feedback. Like 100% will have put some stuff in that maybe wasn't clear. We've road tested with a few people, but I'm sure we have to be So we'll tweak it a bit. So ultimately, by the end of the year, we should have something sort of very polished. I'd like to, at some point, make that public. Because what better way for people to understand what it's like to work at Workable than just say, well, here's the handbook you'd get on day one. There isn't just a binder full of our policies, like harassment policies or work from home policies or the IT policies that compliance and HR means you have to have. But this is how we operate. Like if you like the sound of working at this company, come and come and work here because you will probably find it very rewarding. Um, so I think, yeah, like ask those types of questions. I don't think asking what the company's values are, are very useful because I don't think many companies values will give you that insight. Um, like ours, I really like, we put a lot of effort into to creating them. Um, so I think they do talk about what it's like to work at Workable, but I'm not sure that holds true for every company. And I think that's slightly different from why people work there. Like going back to the um, concept of sort of, do people who work there just want to be their next manager in 18 months? Or is it that they're actually really proud of what they've accomplished in their time there? Have they made friends whilst they're there? Like these for me are the most important things. So I think understand what you're looking for and try and identify whether that's the same things that this company values, but not in the neon sign sense, but in the things. Sometimes I find the hardest question to answer in an interview, describe the culture at Workable. Like that's a big question. Um, because I mean, literally, I've just written a what 34 page employee handbook to it. So trying to sum that up in a few lines is quite hard. But I think it's a great question. Because I think when people get that answer from me in interviews, they get a very candid view of why I'm here, um, and what I stay for. And that I think is important. And it's not because I'm passionate about recruitment software. Like, I'm not like, I don't think that's a normal thing to be passionate about. If you have the same interpretation of the word passion as I do, like my passions lie with my family. Like yeah. that's why they're my family and workable isn't a family. It's like a high performing sports team. So I think, I think that's important. Like some people do like have a passion for certain things. Someone may have a passion for recruitment software. Um, fine. Like it's not mine. I like what we do. I like the impact we have on our customers. I like the fact that we've helped over a million people be hired. Like, I think that's pretty cool. Um, but it's it's different. Like I think, and I think acknowledging that's important. Um, and it's not to belittle what we do in any way. Like what we do is important. But what brings me and this is sorry, I've gone totally on a tangent. But what I'm kind of most proud of at Workable and what we've built and being part of that build is the opportunities we've given. I mean, okay, currently 280 people, but obviously we've got alumni. So probably in total, four or 500 people, the opportunity to work, develop, progress and move on. And the opportunities that's given them to do what they want to do, whether that's provide more for their family, whether it's to do that hobby that they love doing outside work, like whatever it is, like that's what makes me sort of proud of building something. Um, I think we've built a great product that a lot of people love. We've built a workplace that people enjoy working in. And I think a company that's generally kind of admired for how it does all of those things. And that's really our goal. Um, so yeah, sorry, I think that went off on a bit of a tangent in terms of maybe not the best career advice, but yeah, the too long didn't read version, find out what motivates the people you're interviewing with. If it's the same stuff that motivates you, you've got a pretty good chance that I think you're going to enjoy that role. Yeah, I think I think that motivation piece is really important. And I've always been really impressed when a candidate's asked, you know, either me or, or one of my colleagues. Um, and I think a couple of folks in in sort of the Zinc team answer those questions really well. Um, so sort of like uh, Sanjeev, our tech lead, and Sam, our chief of staff, are, are brilliant at 
you know distilling what motivates them at work and and sort of conveying that in in sort of a really exciting way for people um and I always get great feedback from from my candidates about them which is is you know as a recruiter that's what you want from your hiring manager it's it's the dream (laughs) and is that something that they've naturally picked up because they've done a lot of hiring in the past and they happen to be good at it or is that do you have sort of interview training at Zinc that's kind of helped them do that because I think interview training is something that I hear more and more about right that this is that sort of skill that you just kind of become a manager then get told okay your most important job now is managing a team is hiring good people and then enabling them to do good work but by the way we won't give you any training towards actually how to interview effectively so you get some people who appear to have a natural ability or they've hired more in the past so they've learned it over time but we i don't think companies generally do a good job of providing that type of training what, what, what's your take on that either at zinc or just like you've you've worked at plenty of companies experienced this yeah, in other businesses like what's your take on interesting that? so uh, you know i used to be a contractor um for anyone who who sort of wants to go and have a little snoop on on my linkedin profile um so one of the things I used to do actually was go into companies and, and run recruitment training for them um, and also sort of do a bit of a, a manager 101. So you, congrats, you're a manager now. This is what you're, you know, sort of what you need to do um, versus your old kind of job. And a lot of that was recruiting. I think Zinc specifically, it's probably a little a little bit uh, different. Um, so our chief of staff has a recruitment background. Um, one of our founders has a recruitment background. Our VP of sales has come from HR tech and has a lot of experience interviewing and, and sort of building teams as well. Um, having said that, what is really important to me is, is that we as a sort of team of, of hiring managers uh, sit down put our heads together and, and think about, you know, making sure that we're all interviewing in the same way, interviewing in a sort of consistent way. So we've recently put some work into building a bank of, of questions that we ask everyone to make sure that, that those things are consistent and, and sort of we're, we're being uniform and, and sort of fair with everyone we're interviewing. Um, and at the moment, the recruitment training is sort of quite kind of ad hoc coaching, I'd say, on my part. Um and um, which is great. But one of the things I do want to do is formalise that a little bit more because we are going to start bringing in people to the process who aren't necessarily hiring managers. They're not going to be managing the person, but they are, you know, sort of a senior IC or a subject matter expert in the particular area that we're hiring into. So we want them involved mm. in the process. Um, I can think of a couple of, of people, um, you know, sort of uh, that, that is at Zinc. So, you know, I want to make sure that, that they've got some more formalised training. So it will be digging in my magic bag of tricks um, and, and sort of zincifying uh, that version of things, which is, uh, you know, I think it's quite exciting. Because um, that reminds me of something else that wasn't on the topic of this conversation, but just reminds me, it's like, when we think about back to the question, around kind of like, what's the, the role of a CHRO and, and what we do, but also with some of the stuff that you sort of mentioned is, how do we quantify the impact of some of that? And I think quite often, there's that sort of feeling that, well, you can't quantify very well what an HR person does or like, what are the impact? Like in sales, great, new business target, very black and white. How much money did you book this month? What's your target for the year? Great. And I think that's that's something that is important. Like you've got to at least understand what it is you're trying to achieve with what you're doing. Like how is what you're doing as an HR or people function delivering on the company goals and I think there you need the company goals like you need to understand what they are and then it also helps that prioritization like okay I've got 10 things I could work on in 2023 but given these objectives what are the four that I'm actually going to focus on okay cool they're the four I'm going to focus on right what initiatives do I need to have to to achieve those and I think that's important I think again like with your point around sort of that how many developers you need to speak to this week is easy. I don't think it is. I think that goal setting is tough. And I think historically, like HR has struggled maybe to quantify some of that. So I think that's something that for me is important. Like for L&D, like we've just made sort of an investment in HR, me coming back with hiring L&D, what impacts that going to make? Like how are we going to be able to kind of see that? So that's another thing to think about sort of CHRO, like what are those metrics or KPIs that we're going to track? Is it things like average tenure? Like if one of the objectives is to be a great place to work, how do we actually quantify that? Well, it could be average tenure that's over three years. It could be making sure that our employee NPS remains above 60. 
these are things then that you say, okay, if that's our priorities, if we see those things starting to drop below our desired level, what initiatives are we going to undertake to improve them? And then you can start to sort of start tracking that quantifiable impact. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's one other thing, slightly off on a tangent, um, that's worth considering for for anyone, especially if they think, oh, my job isn't like that. It's like it really is. Um, there really usually are ways that you can do it. And again, back to OKRs, that's what helps you give that framework. If your role is one where you're delivering initiatives, then okay, what is that initiative impacting? Even if you're not directly responsible for that KPI or that key results, like which ones are impacting? Okay, cool. Now I understand what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe I, I take for granted a bit sort of that that kind of numbers focus. Um, you know, it's something that's always been quite important to me. Maybe a little bit of, of sort of contractor experience. I've always had to kind of justify my time and, and sort of what I've done with what I'm billing. So I've got very used to saying, right, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this, and it contributes to, you know, this thing that I've been told to do and achieve. Um, but I think, uh, you know, sort of being able to, to distill that, you know, is quite helpful. And I think always from a leadership perspective, being able to zoom out and have a look at that bigger picture um, is, you know, sort of where the step between, you know, kind of being an individual contributor and, and working in a, a leadership position kind of happens, I think, um, which I I think might be quite a nice conclusion uh, to this episode, because although it's absolutely fly, flown by, I think we've actually run out of time, Rob. <laughs> we've, I think we've gone a bit over, but that's fine. I could, I could carry on for ages, but I'm not sure you or anyone listening this far in would thank me. Yeah, I think I think we both could. Um, so yes, if if uh, you're still with us, um, thank you very much. Um, this has been a really uh, interesting episode and and a great way to to sort of kick back off with Talent Hacks. So thank you so much, Rob, for joining us in, for and sharing me. your wisdom and insights. We really appreciate it. No, thank you for the invite. I've enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Um, so thank you. And um, for for those of you listening, we will have the next episode up next month. And um, we will tell you a little bit more about that uh, later. Thank you. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by Zinc. Zinc is an all-in-one background and reference checking software that supercharges the capabilities of ambitious HR and hiring teams. Our range of integrated solutions turn bad to brilliant, saving weeks of team time while building brand love. Thanks for listening.